Thank you, Joe. It's uh, delightful to be here. As Joe said, uh, I have uh, the distinct honor of being the chair of the MIT faculty, so any day that I can leave campus is probably a, what they call a win-win solution uh, for them and for, for me. So uh, it's good to be here. And it's particularly good to be here uh, at Villanova with uh, such a, a, a dedicated group of people who share the deep concerns that uh, all Americans share at some level and that we sometimes lack a, a good effective way of expressing the deep concern that something is fundamentally wrong with our society, something's fundamentally wrong with our economy. In a situation where we find uh, people in this country increasingly angry, increasingly anxious, and increasingly feeling a sense of powerlessness, I think we are at a time where we've got to ask some very, very basic moral and economic questions. And so what I'd like to do today is to talk with you, and I mean talk with you. I'll, I'll lay out some ideas and some thoughts, but I think we share a common challenge, and that is how do we get a conversation going in this country, in Washington and across the country, that energizes us to take on the issues that, are, that make us all struggle as working families today and to make some progress to turn that dialogue into real action. Because I can't think of a time, certainly in our lifetimes, that the need for action, the need for a fundamental change in the way in which we relate to each other at the workplace has occurred and, and will occur in our lifetimes. And so we have a responsibility to step up uh, to the plate and to take action. And I think probably a, a good way to talk about the challenges we face and what we need to do is to go back to maybe the, the best preacher of our time, and that is Martin Luther King Jr. When in 1963, among the many things that uh, he's known for, uh, for saying and for emphasizing. I think this quote captures where we are today, where it's a little bit sexist because it's the 1960s, but it says the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where we stand in times of challenge and controversy. That's where we are today. Time of uncertainty, time of challenge, time of controversy to be sure, and we need to step up we need to ask what are the moral and economic dimensions of the challenges we face and what are the moral and economic bases for action for dealing with the crisis that we find in our workplace. And so this conference on Catholic social teaching and worker justice for me was an opportunity not only to think about the technical side of these issues but also to, to, deep, to dig deep back in, in our own value system to ask what principles do we inherit from Catholic social teaching and perhaps from other religions that help us to put some perspective on this situation and help us to have the courage and maybe the direction uh, for action and maybe a way of framing this in a deeper way than we find today. When I think about Catholic social traditions, I'll say a number of things that dig a little bit deeper in history. But this quote at the beginning of the bishop's pastoral in letter in 1986 is one that I've used in a number of different places. 
because I think it captures what the economy is expected to do for all people in our society. And it says, our, our faith calls on us to measure the economy not just by what it produces, but also by how it touches human life and whether it protects or undermines the dignity of the human person. And economic decisions do have very, very human consequences. And the moral and moral content, they help, they hurt people. They strengthen or weaken family life, and they advance or diminish the quality of justice in our land. That, if we are economists, sociologists, political scientists, lawyers, theologians, or whatever profession we come from, when we think about shaping our economic relationships at the workplace and in other settings, we ought to keep this quote in mind. But we can dig a little bit deeper. I am not a theologian, and I'm here among uh, the experts in that field. So I don't want to belabor the deep but rich traditions that we have come from in our Catholic faith and in, in many religious traditions, dating back to the Greek philosophers, Aristotle and his rationalism, to the, the strong preaching and parables of the Gospels and, and statements in between in the Old Testament, to St. Thomas Aquinas with his emphasis that work is so central and health and important to a healthy soul. And even in at the, around the same time of the medieval uh, period and the Reformation with Calvin and Luther, seeing that work is part of human dignity and hard work is a, is a key to salvation. Those are bedrock principles that uh, help us to understand the role that work plays in our society. Popes from Pope Leo XIII to uh, John Paul to the current Pope Benedict have written papal encyclicals, very influential and very moving and very deep papal encyclicals, speaking about the value and the dignity of work and the freedom of association, which are so central uh, values in our religious traditions. The 1986 Bishop's Pastoral laid out a framework. That was a, a wonderful document. It didn't go as far as many people think it ought to, and it probably didn't dig deep enough into the moral uh, dimensions of the issues at hand in the 1980s because the 1980s were a terrible turning point in our society, as I'll, I'll mention in a moment, where we lost sight of many of our values, where the basic social contract, a concept that I'm going to draw on a bit here this afternoon, broke down and hasn't been put back together since. But that bishop's pastoral on economic justice for all told us that we can, with creative thinking, with goodwill and with political strength, find a way to build a better economy. And we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us, courageous leaders on the front lines of the battle for justice at work, men and women, religious tradition, laity, all working toward a notion that we can't just speak about these issues, we have to act on them as well. So people as far back as uh, Father John Ryan, his emphasis on the living wage. And in Chicago, uh, 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 Father Jack Egan and the great George Higgins in Washington, emphasizing social justice on the front lines, whether it was with the tomato workers and the uh, agricultural workers that uh, uh, worked in Ohio for Campbell's Soup and the, the contractors, or whether he was walking the halls of Congress or visiting the White House. He was the same. Monsignor Higgins, who always had a smile, always had a warm word, always had encouragement, 
and always had a sharp pencil to, to correct uh, things that I would write or that I would send him. But someone who was dedicated and determined that he was going to dedicate his life to the, to the working people of our country. Going back earlier, the, the, worker, the Catholic worker and Doris Day and her activism at a time when it was difficult for women to be as assertive as she found a way to be and determined to live her life the way she felt she should live it, but live it in a way that demonstrated that, that working on the front lines in New York City and elsewhere to both write and to, to help people directly uh, was part of her mission and her ministry to uh, the people around her. Those of us who are lucky enough to go to Catholic schools appreciate the generation of nuns who have worked for years and years on the front line of educating us and giving us a sense of value and a sense of determination and indeed I would also say a sense of confidence that we can address the big problems of today and I want to applaud the women religious and the Catholic nuns for their courageous actions to speak out on health care in the last uh, several weeks and to help us get even this modest health care bill through the Congress and, and in the face of some resistance uh, from others in the Catholic Church. And then our, our good friends, friends who I was lucky enough to work with uh, at the Boston Labor Guild and the other labor priests that some of whom are here and active in, our, in ministry today. Uh, Father Mort Gavin who introduced me to the Boston labor community. Ed Boyle, a dear, dear friend who what ministered for the Boston uh, Archdiocese Labor Guild for so many years, and then Mary Praninsky, who followed him, and Pat Sullivan, uh, who is here in, in our midst at this meeting today. This Labor Guild is the heart and the soul of the Boston labor and management community. It brings people together. It engages people in talking about their differences. It helps to mediate. It provides a forum where difficult negotiations, most recently with the Boston uh, Globe and, and uh, the various unions struggling to keep that organization and that newspaper alive, met there and used it as a, a neutral forum to work through very difficult issues. And now we have this new organization that Joe Fahey really inspired, the Catholic Scholars for Worker Justice. All of this is in a rich tradition. And it's a tradition that allows us to speak to these issues with a sense of, of, of value, a sense of principle, and the fact that we are not alone in this struggle because we have some, some important doctrines around the dignity of work, around freedom of association, around a living wage, and around treatment uh, of each other uh, at the workplace in a way that builds solidarity for the common good. A notion that we should have problems solved at the local level, subsidiarity principles that those people at the workplace who have the big stake in their, in their um, situation know, have the best understanding of what to do about how to solve problems and move forward. That's, those are some of the principles from which we have benefited over the years and I think we need to bring those principles into the, the debate over what to do today. Because as I said, I believe we have what I call a broken social contract. Social contract, as Joe and Tom Kohler, at, at, at my friend at Boston College, have told me, is not a, a perfect metaphor, given our traditions, because it tends to be more individualistic. But I think about the social contract as a very social, mutual set of expectations and obligations for what employers, from what workers, from what all of us at the workplace should expect each other and what we are obliged to do to make the workplace 
work for all parties toward the common good. And indeed, we had uh, some, some principles that flowed from that that historically we expected that as workers contributed to improving productivity, they would also share in that productivity. I'm going to show you a chart about that in just a second. That uh, wages should rise in tandem with economic growth. That as, as we worked longer and, and aged and stayed in our organizations or uh, stayed committed to economic activity, our income should improve. We should become more secure. We should be able to eventually retire with dignity uh, at an appropriate age. Our young people, we made a promise that if they played by the rules and got a good education and worked hard in school, they could start their, their, their careers and their jobs in uh, a position that would allow them to improve on their standard of living perhaps better than what they experienced growing up, and they could make contributions to building a family, having a healthy family, and contribute to our society. And so these are some of the elements of a social contract, all of which have broken down. And the one picture that I think shows this more than anything else is from uh, our friends at the Economic Policy uh, Institute. And it shows that if, if you go back to the post-World War II time period, from 1944, 45, through the mid-1970s, up until just around 1980, wages and productivity did grow together. That's why we had an improving standard of living. To be sure, not for everyone. Women were left out of that, this picture to some extent. Underrepresented minorities were left out. Immigrants were left out to some extent. But by and large, average workers and average families improved their standard of living enormously because they got a share of the productivity growth. And they got that not out of some natural law of economics, but they got it because we had institutions and policies and collective bargaining principles and processes and shared power that allowed workers to bargain for a fair share of the productivity growth that they helped to create. But something happened. Around 1980, you see these two lines diverge, where productivity continues to grow, but wages have essentially been stagnant. And so today's worker, the average worker today, is in about the same position that he was around 1980. Women have done better because they put more hours into the workforce. They've gotten better educated. They've had more job opportunities thanks to uh, stronger uh, legislation and equal employment opportunity and affirmative action uh, requirements and, and uh, uh, other opportunities that have opened up to them. But basically, the average hourly wage has not grown since the 1980s. And this is an American uh, uh, tragedy because it means today too many workers are, are back where they were in 1980 while the costs of society have grown. But that was all before this thing that now is called the Great Recession. Now we have an enormous job crisis, one, on, one that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. The numbers you're familiar with, I don't need to go into them in detail. The, the formal unemployment rate hovers around 10%, but that masks a much, much deeper problem. If you add up those who are uh, part-time employed, those who are marginally employed, those who want full-time jobs, that number essentially doubles. The official underemployment rate, again, is 17%, but it doesn't take much to get that number above 20%. Of those who are unemployed, 40% have been out for more than half a year watching and losing faith and losing uh, dignity as they uh, suffer through the, the psychological and economic uh, trauma of long-term unemployment. 
our young people. 27% of our young people are unemployed, and even among those who graduate from college, about half of them are in jobs, if they can find them, that don't uh, require the skills that they earned and, and developed through their college degree. Young people, young men in particular, are starting out today about 20% below where they were in 1975. So young families, starting like my children, who are, are starting their families, who have uh, 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 recently or, or formed relationships, gotten married, getting going, they are now starting well below their cohorts of an earlier generation. And they know it's going to take two uh, good incomes in order to somehow get ahead in life. The blue collar workers today are in not a recession, but they are really in the same position they were in the Great Depression. In the Great Depression, we lost about 18% of blue collar jobs, construction, uh, production, and related uh, jobs in our economy. We've now lost about 17% of those jobs. So for blue collar workers, this truly is a depression. If you add it all up, we have about an 11 million, do million job deficit. That is, if we want to get back to where we were before this recession began, we've got to create 11 million jobs. And any projection, just letting market forces do their own kind of thing, assuming there's a reasonable recovery and not a jobless recovery, means we're going to be about 4 to 5 million jobs short at the end of 2012. That's not an economy that's acceptable to anyone, and no wonder we are so angry. Well, there was hope. There still is hope. The hope that we all shared when President Obama's historic election uh, became a reality. There was great hope that we would see a fundamental change in our labor and employment policies, and we would see a new labor policy driven by a vision for how to rebuild a social contract at work that started with reform of our labor law, but also went on to rebuild all of the, the labor and employment statutes and administrative processes that were devastated in the eight years prior to his election. And we thought that this would be an opportunity to lay a foundation for energizing American business and American labor movement representatives and community leaders and NGOs and religious leaders to really begin working together again to lay a foundation for the kind of innovation that is necessary to create the productivity growth that can support future wage improvements as well. And we thought perhaps for a change we would see a labor policy that was integrated, that was part of an economic policy, because if we look at the economic, so-called economic recovery from 2002 to 2007, workers were left out. They didn't grow in wages. We didn't grow. Uh, we never recovered all of the jobs that were lost. And so some people are calling this the not decade. No wage growth, no job growth. And so we hoped that we could do better. The reality is that we didn't. So far, this situation, this administration has, I would say, at least from my standpoint, I may be uh, 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 overly uh, critical of this, but it's been a disappointment on the labor front. Labor policy is marginalized. Economic policy is centralized in the White House. Our U.S. Department of Labor has some very good people. You're going to have the Secretary of Labor here. She is a, a very dedicated uh, and committed person to all that is right 
about uh, the workplace and about the role of labor and the dignity of work. But frankly, the Department of Labor has very little to do with what goes on in economic policy today. Labor is viewed as a political problem to be managed, not as part of an integral uh, part of our economic policy making. And labor law reform, as we all know, the Employee Free Choice Act uh, has been put off and put off and put off. And in fact, even when it has been debated in Congress or debated in the public or debated in the, uh, in the labor and management circles, it's devolved into a losing debate. It's devoid of both a moral foundation and an economic foundation. If we have any hope, and yes, I still do have some hope, that someday we will get effective labor law reform, whether we call it the Employee Free Choice Act or some modified version of it, which I'll talk about a little bit, uh, a little bit later, then we've got to lay a moral foundation as well as an economic foundation for it. Unfortunately, the debates that we note all too well going on within the labor movement, the internal chaos within the service employees and the, the uh, uh, restaurant and health and the uh, hotel workers that uh, are tied into that same uh, circle of, of debates have devastated the, the opportunities, have reduced the opportunities for labor law reform because they create such a negative image of the labor movement and the opponents of labor law reform are just waiting for that issue to come on the surface so that they can highlight all of the, the nasty internal uh, battles that are going on. And so perhaps we've lost another window of opportunity as we lost one in the Clinton administration, as we lost one way back in the Carter administration. But I think we have to keep up the faith. The jobs crisis that I just outlined is, has been slow in, in getting a response. My hope now is that, and my belief now, is that once that, that uh, we have dealt with health care as best we can, that the jobs issue will surface. I believe the jobs crisis will be the defining domestic policy issue for the rest of this administration, perhaps for the rest of this decade. And if we don't address it more aggressively, then there is going to be hell to pay, not only politically for those in office today, Democrats and probably Republicans as well, but there's also going to be tremendous, tremendous anger and frustration that's out there. So I believe we have to lay out the moral foundation and an economic foundation for dealing with this job crisis. And I would submit to you that when we think about it, when we talk about it, when we debate it with our colleagues and when we take, it, take our arguments to Congress or wherever we can, we've got to keep two dimensions of this crisis in mind. Yes, there is an enormous job deficit, and I just sort of outlined the numbers. And we have to start by closing the job deficit, by creating jobs. If Thomas Aquinas was right that work is essential to a healthy soul, then the very basic dignity of work has to be afforded to every man and woman who wants to work and needs to work to support his or her family and to have the basic dignity that allows a person to grow as an individual and to reach the kind of self-satisfaction and self-dignity and definition of person and whole, uh, a wholesome soul that we all aspire to. But we also have to worry about the quality dimension, this wages problem. If we don't get wages moving, again, with productivity, if we don't start to improve the quality of the experience at work, 
If we don't provide, as, as Father John Ryan said, a living wage for all, and if we don't start to respect the freedom of association, then we will have missed an important part of the jobs crisis that workers and their families are suffering from and will also hold us accountable. So what do we need to do? We need to start to make the case that we can't just have the kind of modest, symbolic, I would say, but not real jobs agenda that the Congress has been willing to entertain so far. They say we're not going to have a big jobs bill. We're going to have a jobs agenda. Well, let's lay out a real agenda. Let's start talking about the need for human dignity at work. Let's recognize that the terrible psychological, physical, and social consequences of long-term unemployment on our families, on our societies, on our suicide rates, on mental health, even on the behavioral problems that students and children feel, find at school and experience at school. This is a toll that is a moral toll and an economic toll. And so we do have to extend unemployment benefits, and I think that is now uh, finally being signed or has been signed by the president after long, long delays and some people again losing unemployment benefits. There's a notion that we should provide in this particular situation, even though I'm not a great fan of tax credits for job creation. Right now, we have seen so much productivity growth. You know, firms are holding back on, on hiring people. Maybe this is what we need to push them over the brink. But if we're going to do it, then we've got to do it in a real sense, and not just for small businesses, but for across the board in our economy, and make it real so that we actually do start to create jobs at a significant uh, uh, level. The biggest problem that we have today in jobs is going to be at the state and local level because the states are, are, are all experiencing fiscal deficits. Some are near bankrupt if they aren't officially bankrupt. And therefore, we've got to start to create jobs to keep teachers employed, to keep our, our first line responders employed, to create the kind of social safety net for others in society so that we can deal with these problems. We've invested a little bit in infrastructure. We talk a lot about that. We've put money into infrastructure, but I'm going to say in a moment, that we've been very, very slow in reaping the benefits of those investments, and we need to spend not only more money, but we have to spend more energy, creative energy, in figuring out how to, how to facilitate the infrastructure and the green jobs investments. These are, these are elements. They're not totally sufficient, but they're elements in a comprehensive program. We are not going to solve the job crisis overnight. This has to be a multi-year commitment. We have to have a budget for job creation the same way businesses budget for capital investment. And that should be a multi-year uh, uh, effort. It's going to take a lot more investment than we have put into it uh, so far. But if we don't speak about the moral need for job creation, if we only focus on the technical issues, is the job tax credit better than infrastructure investment, then we are not doing our job consistent with uh, what I believe uh, we have inherited in our traditions. So let's lay out the moral case and the economic case for job creation. And then let's go on to talk about improving job quality. And I've argued that we have lost an opportunity to really debate the Employee Free Choice Act in the way in which it should be debated. And so if God's willing to give us another opportunity, and I don't know when and how that will happen, but if it happens, or if we can make it happen, then by God, we've got to start 
to frame it, to lay out the moral foundations, the moral case for it that is rich and deep in our, our Catholic social teaching, and we've got to make sure that we've got an economic argument so that we can see it as linked to economic recovery. The moral case is very simple and very easy. Just going back to the papal encyclicals, going back to um, uh, the statements that uh, particularly uh, uh, Pope John Paul II, through not only his encyclicals, but all of his work uh, in his years in Poland, and his support for solidarity, and his support for the Polish worker, and his view of himself as a worker priest and a worker uh, advocate all along. Unions are an indispensable part of a just society, we are told in the compendium of social doctrines. We have a situation where we are not protecting workers' rights to organize. We can cite all the statistics and I can give you them and, and Kate Braffenbrenner is here and she can give you a, a, a potful of evidence that shows that 90% uh, of the time that workers try to organize, in the face of management resistance, they fail. And they fail because they can't get through the, the perilous process of going from starting with a majority saying they want to be organized, to getting an election, to winning that election, to then finally getting a first contract. This is an American scandal. And we ought to call it that. And we ought to recognize that this is not consistent with our, our teaching and that those people who are actively violating worker rights and resisting worker rights are engaged in immoral acts. Catholic uh, Scholars for Worker Justice is putting out a paper, it's a very controversial paper, pointing this out. And I think we all need to pay attention to it. We need to think about it. We need to form our own views of what it means to be uh, engaged in actions that suppress workers' rights, whether we are on the management side or whether we are on the union side, because it can work both ways. But we need to say that not only do we need to restore workers' rights to get a union, to get a collective bargaining contract, but then we also have this concept of solidarity, that we are all responsible, whether we are our union, management, mediators, government agents, or whoever. Those of us who participate in the labor process have to be engaged in working toward the common good. And that should be part of our vision, that labor and management working together can improve the, the, the quality of life in our society by working toward the common good. That's this word solidarity that is so steeped in our traditions and we should stand up for it and we should emphasize what does it take to make labor and management effective in working together. And we've learned some things about partnerships, about working together on a daily basis, on involving employees in decision making and allowing them to use their skills and knowledge to move forward. That's what it takes to work for the common good and that should be part of the debate and it should be part of the fabric of the bill that we support in Congress or wherever to create a new labor law and a new labor policy. The economic case is that if we don't restore worker bargaining power, there's no way we are going to get wages moving in tandem with productivity because we have seen that we can be a productive economy, but unless workers have a voice and have real power, in helping to determine how we distribute the fruits of these labors that they are left behind. So there is a strong case and, a, and an objective case and an affirmative case 
for saying workers have to restore, we have to restore worker bargaining power if we are going to get this economy moving that depends on, uh, for 70% of our economic growth on consumption. We've had several bubble economies. We had the internet bubble. We had the real estate bubble and the financial bubble that uh, 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 the people on Wall Street fostered and then uh, destroyed our economy as a result of not having a real economy that is strong enough to sustain uh, continuous economic growth. We have to move beyond, and this is part and parcel of an economic policy and strategy for moving forward. But yes, we also then need to do it in a modern way and recognize there are ways to compete on the basis of high productivity and high wages, and we've learned how to do that in industries from healthcare to apparel to autos to steel to uh, uh, computers to information processing to airlines. So we need to find ways to take these strategies and build a modern labor relations system. And then perhaps we can go on and attack the role of the set of issues that our colleagues in the Labor Department are entrusted to enforce. There's a wide array of things that we could do. And in fact, in this area, I want to applaud the Secretary of Labor and our, our, the good people that have been put in place in our various offices in the Department of Labor because they are getting on with this part of the puzzle. And I think they are making some very, very uh, important headways. But fundamentally, it is also a scandal that our good friend Kim Bobo at Interfaith Worker Justice has to write a book called Ending Wage Theft in America, some 60 plus years after we passed the legislation that establishes the minimum wage that establishes overtime pay for more than 40 hours of work. It's a scandal that, that low wage workers are not paid in increasing uh, numbers of places, whether it's in the sweatshops of New York or the sweatshops of Los Angeles, or whether it's in the stores of Walmart which has been sued and finally successfully resolved these suits in over 30 states for failing to pay workers their rest breaks, their meal breaks, and their overtime pay because what is their strategy? Their strategy is low prices all the time on all products. And that means squeezing labor and squeezing managers to squeeze labor to meet their budgets. We've got to find a way to take away the low road and enforce our labor policies and add the staff that uh, the Labor Department now is adding to rigorously and vigorously enforce the basic safety and health and wage and hour and equal employment opportunity and other fundamental uh, labor standards that we have in place. But that's not enough. We'll never have enough people to enforce the law through just command and control, control strategies. So another part of Kim Bobo's book and another part of many of our, 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 our arguments that we have been working with the Department of Labor is to say, let's find new strategies. Let's leverage the institutions that are out there, the worker centers, the community groups, the immigrant labor centers that you find in, in large cities around the country, the labor unions in our, in, our, in our community institutions of labor, and start to use the role of local unions, local community groups to enforce the law and to, to provide the support for workers and become the, and leverage the role of of, of the labor policy enforcement arm at the Department of Labor and the state agency equivalents. Let's also use the progressive employers that have set up state-of-the-art 
safety and health programs. And let's give them some flexibility to move forward to show us how to innovate and how to make progress and how to bring up the standards for everyone else and then hold others accountable for meeting those improved standards. That's how we got safety and health policies or basic practices at our state level way back when in the early part of this century in about 1911 and 1912 in the good state of Wisconsin. John R. Commons, a professor at the University of Wisconsin and sort of the father of much of the, the doctrine of the New Deal legislation, set up an industrial commission to get business and labor working together to show how in the paper industries and the other growing manufacturing industries of, of Wisconsin, you could set safety standards through deliberation because these were the people who understood how to get the work done and how to work safely. That's the kind of model that we could get back to if we had the political will and we had the kind of respect of labor and management working together. So we can use the local institutions. We need to rebuild. That's another reason why we need to rebuild the labor movement and reach out and, and view all of these institutions at the local level as the modern worker uh, voice and the modern representatives of workers in, in our society. These are the things we need to do domestically. But in a global economy, we have to worry about our trade legislation. We have to worry about putting labor standards and environmental standards into our treaties as we reach out and, and, and strengthen our trading alliances around the world. And we have to work with the state-of-the-art NGOs that are out there trying to monitor the labor standards in our global supply chains and moving forward to, to uh, strengthen the enforcement. Again, we can't do this just through traditional enforcement arms. We need strong government policies. We need strong trade regulations. We need enforcement of those regulations. But we also have to build these same institutions that we're talking about here in the United States internationally if we are going to make progress. And then finally, but it shouldn't be finally, and I apologize for having it at the bottom of this list. I wrote a whole book that put it at the top of the list. If today, it takes two working parents to make a decent living, then it's time that we recognize that we are the last country, last developed country in the world to not provide some form of paid leave, whether it's parental leave, sick leave, call it what you want, but some way of recognizing that we've got to meet our dual responsibilities for being good workers and good parents and meeting our community responsibilities at the same time. We can't do that unless we, we look at all of our labor and employment policies and ask, are we supporting the workforce as we find it, the 50% of the workforce that are, 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 are women today who still bear uh, a disproportionate uh, amount of responsibilities at home, even in uh, modern families. Uh, the evidence is still clear that they're bearing more of the stress and more of the work in these two fronts. And so we've got to find ways to uh, get that back on the table, even though it's very, very low on the priority list now, given everything else. What are the consequences? I'm very worried about this society. I'm worried about our kids. We had a wonderful event uh, in our household, uh, not this Sunday, but last Sunday, uh, our four-year-old granddaughter's uh, fourth, year, uh, fourth birthday party. And so uh, our son and his wife and the, their uh, four-year-old and two-year-old were there. And uh, our uh, other 
uh, family members and some cousins and, and, and a lot of their friends came, came parading through. Uh, all young people, obviously, the same age. It's an angry crowd. Now, these are employed young people. They have jobs or they're in school. So they're not suffering in any significant way, but they are frustrated. They know they're going to have to bear the burdens of this economic collapse. They know they're going to have to pay for the Social Security and the Medicare and everything else for our generation. They know that their incomes are not what their parents were able to achieve at the same age. And they see all the pressures in front of them, and they don't see a society that is listening or responsive. They're as angry at the banks and the big employers and the big unions and the government, and they lump it all together. And they are not, they're more nuanced than that. But that's the kind of dialogue I heard on that Sunday at the birthday party in between balloons and uh, outfits and all kinds of other celebratory kinds of, kinds of events. And so this is the concern I have. If we don't start to deal with these issues, we're going to have a more angry public. We already know that we have seen that anger spill over in recent elections. We will have a failed presidency. All the hope that we had for President Obama and for what it meant to our society after the long struggles with racism in our society, that perhaps we were beyond that, and perhaps we now had a leader who could articulate a sense of how to bring us together, seems to now be at risk. And so if we don't start to deal with the jobs issues, we will have a failed administration. We will have a backlash that I don't even want to anticipate. And we will fail to pass on to our the next generation the ability to solve the problems. The American dream that every generation should be able to do better than uh, their parents is being lost in our society today for our children. And I'm afraid it may even be for our four-year-old and two-year-old grandchildren. And so that's what's at stake here. But there is an alternative. But we've got to start to speak out more forcefully. We've got to have a, a vision and a strategy that is both morally sound and not be bashful about laying out the moral dimensions and that is economically sound so that we can make the case uh, to the skeptical uh, people in the White House and elsewhere who control economic policy and, and and lay out a framework for how labor, the dignity of work, freedom of association, a social contract that moves wage, wages with productivity in a just kind of way, where we start to focus on the corporation as an institution that should be a, concerned about the common good. These are the issues of our time. And unless we look back and we can answer the question of what these giants in the past would say, what would Martin Luther King say today? What would he have us do? What would John Ryan say about wages today? What would Dorothy Day say about our community institutions and the need to work with the poor and the impoverished and the discriminated and the downtrodden and those who have been excluded from society and maybe even from our religious institutions for some uh, human feelings? or frailties that they may possess. What should our bishops be saying? Maybe it's time that we ask our bishops to revisit that 1986 pastoral letter and do it again in a modern way, to take a look at where we are today, to take a look at whether those principles have been fulfilled that they articulated, and what we need to do 
to get this issue, a set of issues back on the table. And maybe if the bishops aren't willing to step up to the plate, maybe the nuns should do it just the way they did it uh, in healthcare. And finally, all of us as educators in institutions like this great university, Catholic institutions or non-Catholic institutions, wherever we find ourselves, we need to ask, are we teaching the next generation enough about the principles that we have inherited? Are we teaching them to stand up for these issues, to show concern for the common good, to worry about solidarity in the best sense of that term, to take their social networking skills and tendencies and put them to work for our economy, for their families, and for our society. That's our responsibility. And then finally, we've got to go beyond talk. We've got to put those words into action. As employers, especially Catholic institutional employers, have a special responsibility to live these principles in what we do at the workplace. Those of us who are out in the world and working with labor and management, we have to carry these principles forward when we work with the parties. I'm delighted that Catholic Scholars for Worker Justice goes out, does the fact-finding, does the investigation, identifies inappropriate or immoral behavior and calls it out, and at the same time looks for good practices, practices that uphold these traditions, and also calls that out and speaks to uh, the, the power of labor and management working together. That's the tradition we've come from. It's our responsibility. It's now on our watch. These people have done their job, and it's up to us to do ours. Thank you.